child loves you. I'll do anything for you. Hello. Welcome to the Social Yet Distance podcast. My name is Jack Barnell. You can find me around the web as the Emotional Orphan. I'm the co-founder and the co-host of the Social Yet Distance podcast, and I want to take a minute to thank you for coming by. This week on the podcast, Patrick Davidson Roberts and poetry doctor Fran Locke have an engaging and insightful discussion on the current state of our pre-post-COVID world poetry. One of the questions tackled is the pondering of whether or not the world has the space and the attention for poetry, and are poets ready for the action or the reaction against the big, empathetic gesture and lyric? Oh, there's clues to be found, all right, in Patrick's work, including his release, The Mains, and Fran and Patrick are going to go hunting to find those answers. Please stay tuned, and thanks. There we go. Hey. Welcome, social yet listeners. Today, I'm talking to the mighty Patrick Davidson Roberts, who's haunted adrenaline-infused poetry you might have heard way back in episode five, I think in our hands across the water special if you didn't catch that i recommend heading over to anchor.fm to check it out immediately immediately you finish listening to this interview so first a wee bit of background um patrick was born in 1987 and grew up in sunderland and durham that's the northeast of england for our stateside listeners he was editor of the next review magazine from 2013 to 2017 co-founded offered road book press in 2017 and he reviews for the poetry school his debut collection is The Mains, <laughs> Vanguard Editions 2018, and in 2019 he ran All My Teachers, the all-woman reading series, and his work has been published in Ambit, Acumen, Iot, Magma, 14 Magazine, The Dark Horse, The Rialto, and On Wild Court, an impressive resume by anybody's standard. Patrick has also just recently finished work on an astonishing new manuscript, which we're going to talk about in due course. Firstly, Patrick, welcome. Yeah. That was so beautifully understated and underwhelmed. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, just, I like listening to you talk. Yeah, just, just rambling on. It will happen if left on my own. I will just become a sort of perpetual motion machine of Irish gabble. So um, mm. I want to jump right in. Stop me making general conversation with Mains. Because yeah. I think it was really my first proper introduction to your work. And what struck me then about it and what strikes me still is just the absolute precision that you write with, the precision of image and praise. And it feels all the more remarkable for the content of the poems being so thematically and emotionally difficult and thorny. Um, I think I wrote at the time about the way in which the poems offer you absolutely no place to hide at all, no kind of consolation or easy catharsis, um, which in the contemporary poetic landscape feels super rare, um, invigorating and noteworthy. And I wonder if you could start by talking a little bit about the impetus for the collection and about this quality of unflinching attention in your work. I think I'm wondering to what extent is it a deliberate poetic strategy? Um, to what extent is it a kind of reaction the kinds of big empathetic gesture 
that's going on in a lot of lyric poetry and which has kind of risen um, to ascendancy in the last decade. Yeah. In your own time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, I mean, the the main the mains is I mean, uh, uh, the mains is 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 pure structure in terms of coping. The um, I you know, but, but I will say this before anything else. Um, poetry is not therapeutic. It doesn't you know sort stuff out. It doesn't you know. But the there there is non there is an unflinching eye to the mains, which is to do with necessity um, and is to do with specificity I mean I don't want to talk too much about the um, about the I suppose um, you know the, the emotional framework that provoked it as a, as a work simply because I, I don't think it's it's vastly important um, but I, as but as I've written on the internet so people can find out um, <laughs> the you know it, it was a book that was provoked by a mental breakdown it was it was a book provoked by um, a degree of hospital treatment it was a book provoked by the breakdown of a marriage it was you know a marriage the marriage um and the extent to which the very specific form that it adopts that of the central sejura of the very short tight lyric line um from from a man from a man who as much as we're allowed to reflect on these things ourselves does not view himself as a lyric poet i view myself mm. as a narrative poet um and it was in t almost entirely written, you know, in, in almost strict, almost exam conditions of not, I will sit down and write a poem, but while I'm writing the poem, I will do it in, I mean, I, I almost feel like the tortured, you know, shoulder cramp and the angle of the arms while typing gets across into the shape of the poem. I think that physicality is very important. Um, I think this, but um, it's also, I mean, it's a, it's a horror show, the mains. It's, it, it, it is as close to a horror film as you can really get. Um, and in terms of the sheer terror that appears in moments of it, or certainly was informing the poems as they were being written. Um, the, I had that image of, I mean, a bit like Francis Bacon, who I consider a vast influence on me. Um, Francis Bacon's obsession with the, uh, the woman with the broken glasses in... Um, and Battleship Potemkin, mm. that idea of the unflinching eye, but it happens in so many horror films and so many ideas of the, you know, the, the wide eye that can't close. I mean, yeah. if you think about the Blair Witch Project or if you think about, you know, the Enfield Haunting, which is literally on the cover of the book. Um, and there was that sense of not being able to look away. Mm. And that was, you know, that. and if we go for, and if you... The, there's a Saul Bellow short, short story which talks about, um, you know, which talks about death and coming to terms with the corpse in front of you. Um, and he says, you can't even take recourse or comfort in Cast a Cold Eye by Yeats because mm. even the cold eye amounts to a contrast with the warm eye or the hot eye. Um, and, and the hot eye is actually quite a good way of thinking about um, thinking about the way the mains is. It's it's a very violent collection. It, it it addresses a very real concern I had about violence in myself and indeed in my effect of violence upon other people, whether um, emotional or physical. Um, and I think that the you know your your point about the uh, reaction against the big empathetic gesture lyric work. I mean, I don't even go so far as to call it lyric work. I, I, the you know some of the stuff that's being churned out and handed handed plaudits um, these these last couple of years. Um, I 
I do worry about how much space there is to hide in, in those poems. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think particularly in terms of cultural referent, um, I think the extent of hiding behind um, something odd or quirky or cute. Um, I also think the idea of hiding behind um, the larger cultural event that you have decided to address without even the excuse of commission. Um, and the and we'll talk about this, I, I think, as we go on, but I, I think the, the, that worry of mine about the scaled-down melodramatic trope that so many people seem to think is all right to place in the middle of the poem in order that should their lyric gift or impulse not live up to it, they can then just squat behind it until the, until the reader goes away. Um, so I think that's true. Um, and I think, with, I think with the mains as well, I mean, I, I, as I've said before, but I can't say it enough, um, I was blessed with, a, with an absolutely astonishing editor in John Clegg, who um, worked very hard at pointing out to me that the structure of the mains is one of dissent and hellscape. Um, when he laid out the order for it the first time after one of our in, innumerable um, sessions, um, the extent to which it resembled that map in Dante's Inferno mm -hmm. of what actually hell looks like, and and I think that the poems mirror that in the way that they um, in the way that they descend and the way that they fragment, um, and I think I suppose I'll, I'll stop talking in a second, but the uh, the I think one of the one of the concerns as well was because I was simply aware that. Um, I had not been well for a while um, yeah. and I didn't know if I was getting better, but I did know that I was, I was under treatment and things like that. So there was a sense of me not trusting the longer image or the longer mm -hmm. line or things like that. You know, the, you know, the aphorism of Don Patterson's where he says that, um, you know, if I write anything longer than a single sentence, I start making stuff up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and there was a mystery. There was, there was a lot of that in the mains. There was, there was an enormous amount of, I'm not sure how much I can trust if I let this out a bit further. Yeah. Well, that makes total sense. I love what you're saying about the idea that, you know, the sort of the cramped, bunched shoulders and, you know, the, the effort and the laboriousness of writing it and getting it out is present in the text because that feels absolutely the way I read it as well. You come away from it, you're like, you're kind of on edge and you sort of, you feel your fingers forming involuntary fists. Yeah, and, and it's, there's it's not the idea. Of that. Yeah, and there's the there's the idea of the stress position. I mean, you yeah. know, the the, mm. the extent the extent to which it didn't last. Um, I mean, torture has been going on since the dawn of man, but the extent to which torture has become a far more accepted part of our cultural discourse now, yeah. and in terms of the way that we attempt to react and speak with the knowledge that somewhere it is happening, mm. um, and the idea of the stress position. Um, I think when when writing about the viscera and when writing about you know the, the screaming the screaming point of intensity as Ian Hamilton said of, of mm. some of the poems of Larkin's that were revealed after Larkin's death that were just so terrifying to look at um, I think when writing about that the extent to which you can accidentally use a poem to thrust somebody into a stress position um, and to provoke a reaction in the reader and in the listener which um, is different to an effect um, whereby you are you are forcing something out of them that actually you have no right to force with it mm. as, a, as a fellow citizen. Um, and it's, I mean, ironically enough, I, I, I mistrust those readers who start readings with trigger warnings, but I understand why they do it. Um, mm. I've, I've always worried, worried about the self-magnanimity involved in trigger warnings because you're saying, by the way, I'm just about to read something that is so impressive, it's going to have that kind of effect on you. And and actually, if you if you cared about 
you know, if, if, if you were so worried about triggers and things like that, and as most of us are, you wouldn't be at a poetry reading. No. You know? you or you wouldn't be, be at that poetry reading. Yeah. Mm. yeah, I don't do trigger warnings. I find, no, I think people take it as red now that if you're going to listen to something I've written, that it's going to make you feel horrible. And <laughs> what yeah, the, the, only, the, only, the only trigger reading, uh, the trigger warning I, I've ever had you do actually was um was uh once when you wrote when you read a very beautiful poem about your husband and you said a happy love poem what the fuck's that doing in a fan poetry reading yeah <laughs> it's just sort of like to warn people there will be schmucks run away run away yeah, now yeah yeah, yeah there's the possibility that you there's a possibility you might be able to lean backwards during this poem because yeah. <laughs> most of the time i feel that like the, the idea that you're being sort of like soft i feel like with a lot of liberal poetry you're being softened up to something they're using this kind of like this, this plausible musicality, which is like, come with me, beckoning you in with this lyric gesture. And I find that as, you know, coercive and uncomfortable as coming to put you in that other position and make you feel stressed. I think I'd rather feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Than, like I'm trying to be tricked. It feels like, you know, hey, little girl, you want to see some puppies when people do that yeah, to yeah. me? Oh, yeah, no, the no, was it well, the 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 immortal phrase of the of the the great um, the, the great uh, was it Jack Dargy in Thirty Rock? He said, you know, if you won't do it yourself, I will I will do what my my if you won't jump in the deep end yourself, I will do what my mother did and lure you to the deep end for put a puppy and push you in. Um, but I I think there's 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 an element of of um, of almost the inverse of the of the luring in, which I think both your work in particular um, and I hope my work. Um, it does as well, which is, it was something I recognised in Mark Kermode's uh, long writing about The Passion of the Christ, where he said yes. The Passion of the Christ as a film doesn't make sense unless you realise that Mel Gibson's art is founded in exploitation. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, the sh she, and not only exploitation, exploitation, the exploitation mm -hmm. stuff is from the 70s and the 80s, it's just astonishing to watch. But it's about the fact that it's at the moments in The Passion of the Christ where either the flogging is going on or the crucifixion is taking place, where, which they intersperse with the Sermon on the Mount or with the Last Supper. Yeah. And so it's the idea of um, we have battered down your instincts to the point that we will now give you these incredibly quiet, soft, although, as I said to a mate the other day, the idea that anyone thinks the Sermon on the Mount was quiet. I mean, this is a man <laughs> shouting from a mountain at a bunch of people. I mean, you know, anyway. But I imagine that the last supper was quite quiet. Um, yeah. the, and, and that idea of, um, of softening up in the way that a boxer softens someone up. Mm -hmm. you know? yeah. And I mean, a boxer does not then do something soft and gentle once the person is softened up. <laughs> However, but that idea of, um, that idea of the smuggling in of, of the lyric shard, in a way, um, it's, it, it is cloak and dagger stuff. Um, but I think that, the, you know, Cloak and Dagger is different to um, what you're saying of sort of the, the, gen, the, the, the I mean, I hate to use this because I don't like Alvarez's original point about it, but it is a new gentility which is taking hold at the moment. I mean, particularly within the, you know, the poetry classes and the, um, you know, the, the groups of people sitting around on the, on the lists and the shortlists and the, the great chairs that they've built themselves. And it, it is a new gentility because they are aware of their lack of lyrical reach and they are aware of their lack of narrative function and they're aware of their lack of reading. Um, and it's about gently saying, come over here. And if this poem doesn't work, you, you know, you won't go away feeling ripped off. Yeah. 
shaped feelings about a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, um, I'm, I'm, going, I'm, I'm going to attempt to be as good as possible about all this, but um, the, possi the possibility of let, let, letting rip at one point cannot be discounted. No, I, you know, so try, I try very hard. Yeah. I'm also aware that, you know, the, your audience are also <laughs> people that are slagging up. Yeah. Slightly, I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I think eventually it's just going to be me and my mom sitting in a room together. Yeah. That's what my poetry readings are going to look like. Maybe you will be there. We will just be sitting well, there yeah. bitching about everyone and, and eating cake. Well, no. But I mean, that's, but I mean, uh, um, one of one of the things, uh, I mean, one of the reasons about, you know, sort of um, binding this stuff up and sending it to mm. six or seven people is, well, those are the six or seven people I want to read it, you know, it's, and it's and there's actually something quite old about that as an idea. It's, yeah. it's, it's what I like so much about, you know, Thomas Wyatt or, you know, mm. Surrey, you know, the idea that these poems would be written down on a piece of paper and they'd be handed to somebody and then they'd be handed to somebody else. Um, and so you wrote it with that idea of the very intense, um, specific audience in mind. Yeah. Um, and it didn't mean that you wrote poems for that audience. I mean, as much as performative as a lot of Henrician verse is, um, but you wrote it knowing that these people had a certain level of, in, of emotional engagement. Mm -hmm. You didn't have to convince them to come in. Yeah. Um, you, had to you had to convince them you were good and that you were worth the commitment, but you, you know, you knew that you had their trust a little bit to start with. Yeah, I'm, I think it's ridiculous that in the last year we have not embraced um, social distancing in poetry readings, bearing, bearing in mind that if you socially distance a poetry reading, you can make it look like so many more people were going to come. You know? It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> no, it looks like 15 people. It would have been 100, but the government said we couldn't. You know? yeah, government said no. That's exactly that, you know. Yeah, that's going to be my excuse. But, you know, I think it's, I really enjoy the idea that, you know, this is being circulated in a very sort of like old way. And I think it's, I'm thinking about like, you know, the kind of the idea of a cohort versus the community in inverted commas, which is sort of an attempt to draw a chalk line around yourself and other people who think can idly reflect you. Whether it's, yeah. you know, a cohort, I think is more engaged it's tribal yeah. in a sense, you know. It is tribal. And I think the, I mean, one of the things um, that I think, uh, I, I don't know how much this is linked up into your and my interest in um, sort of um, Viking literature and, and Norse, you know, behavior for want of a better word. Um, but I, I always view writing and indeed readings as, as, as more of a raiding party. Than an occupation force I, I always have you know and I I yeah. like that idea of getting in and getting out again I like you know partly because it appeals to the, the nomad the nomad the nomad in me which I'm surprised by but have come to terms with um, <laughs> I, I, I thought I was a far more stationary person I'm interested by quite how nomadic the spirit has, has turned out to mm -hmm. be um, but that sense of the um, of the you know nipping in nipping out you know apocryphal story but I mean you know as I've told you, by far the best thing that anyone said during an online reading I was doing was, you know, have have we been hacked? Have we been zoom bombed? Who are these people? And I like I like that sense of shock, and I like that, you know, and you know the the idea of you know getting in there and sitting the, the idea of getting in there and sitting down and making yourself comfortable for a couple of weeks is um is one of again we're talking about comfort and we're talking mm -hmm. about enduring people mm -hmm. in and the idea of you know this this is a poetry reading you're not supposed to be comfortable you know I mean. 
and the and the the problem with an enormous amount of um, work at the moment uh, that is being written and lauded and published and you know highly stroked is um, the the extent to which this they're saying this is shocky, difficult, difficult, edgy stuff. But uh, but do stay for a glass of wine. Yeah. Um, it's a safe know, space. It's a, it's safe, a safe space. space. It's a safe space, and I was like, yeah. Why? <laughs> what? You know, don't, how stupid are you that you don't, that you don't? And the issue is that with a lot of people, with a lot of the people in, in question, they're not stupid. They know exactly the contradiction that they're pulling off, mm. and they're doing it because they're in a position of power, and yeah. um, and it's it's exploitation simple yes yeah we have yeah again because of this moment where there's this no no sound but the sound of the chewing of tongues yeah, yes. <laughs> quiet chewing of tongues so yeah so i want to kind of like divert the conversation slightly away from all the things about contemporary poetry that enrage us um but staying with the sort of state of poetry motif a bit You've obviously had a lot of experience um, editing and also publishing work, um, and as well as hosting the wonderful reading series on my teachers. Um, maybe you could tell us something about those various projects and their relationship to your own creative practice, and also kind of where they slot into the contemporary UK poetry scene more broadly. I've always wondered, was there a feeling of needing to redress that balance or to provide a platform for work that wasn't perhaps as obviously populist or appealing? Because there's a lot of work that is obviously populist and appealing in every single sense. And, I think, yeah, yeah um, there, there was. I mean, I, I've always. Uh, I, I think if we, I think if we take as a, a start point when I ran the next review. I mean, I, I ran the next review entire, entirely out of it. I set up and ran the next review entirely out of an interest in, you know, the great heroic ethic of failure, as Michael Collins used to put. Um, these things um, the of of magazine culture in the sixties and seventies. I mean, specifically Ian Hamilton's um, attempts to run quite tough, braced up things. Which you know, magazines which actually criticised ma magazines which mm -hmm. believed that there needed to be a winnowing. And I felt that there just wasn't one of those. I mean, yeah. I think there is. I think there are some exceptions. I think um, Butcher's Dog is a really good magazine that does that. Um, I think the Dark Horse. Um, yeah. Jerry Cambridge, but then Jer Jerry, like me, is interested by Ian Hamilton and is interested by that adversarial idea. With the, you know, um, with the next review, the things that I remember with, with most sort of pride in a way, or we um, we ran what can only be described as a bit of a public conversation, um, because we were the first people to write a review of um, Emma McBride, where um, a friend of mine, the highly qualified and excellent. Irish novelist Neve Campbell um, wrote a review in which she said, actually, I don't think this is such a good thing as everybody's saying that it is. And I think that there's a limitation of Irish identity being put across yeah. here. And mm. I think that, the, you know, um, in a, and, and I was proud of the fact that it wasn't so much we were slagging something off, but we were the one place where you could go to where, you know, white middle-class English people weren't falling over backwards to say how interesting and authentic this Irish voice was. I mean, it's so wonderful. <laughs> you, can, you can almost smell the peat, darling. You know, and the, and I like that we did that. But I also like that um, a contemporary a, a contemporary guy at university um, who'd gone on to do some writing, uh, Charlie Dawkins, then said, "Actually, could I write a rejoinder to this? Could I write?" A, and I said, "Yeah, you can." I mean, much in the way that J Jerry, uh, that uh, Jerry Cambridge ran in Dark Horse, you know, a conversation about mm. Jeffrey Hill, 
which turned out to be, you know, between, um, uh, was it Peter McCary and, and Greville Lindop. And that was, that was the thing that I cared about was the idea that, you know, anyone can get in this ring if you want to. And I liked running adversarial things. I liked the fact that we were one of the few people who, upon the death of Seamus Heaney, wrote an essay in which we pointed out that there are actually some troublesome aspects in mm -hmm. Seamus Heaney's work. He is not the, you know, saint that we think he is. I mean, but, um, and so I liked with the next review that we did that. I liked that we found a couple, we got a couple of, as most magazines must do, you find a couple of poets that end up representing the angle and the mindset. Mm. Um, I like that we were able to publish new stuff by these people. Um, and, and eventually it fell apart because of lack of money, because that's what happens. Mm. Um, yeah. But that's all right. And we, and we did reinvigorate, I think, the practice of conversations, long conversations between poets um, in, in magazines. I mean, I, you know, I, the only time I've been threatened with libel in my life, or indeed any legal action, was entirely because of a conversation between me and Don Patterson, which we had at about nine o'clock on, mm. on a on a Tuesday morning in a travel lodge while looking through the window of a Costa trying to work out if Alex Salmond was in it. Um, and the and you know those are mo those are just wonderful those are just wonderful moments and there are sad moments as well. But I mean, I remember when I remember when um, Private Eye and the and a series of areas of the Murdoch press decided to be misogynist and racist about Sarah Howe and a bunch yes. of other people and I and I was able to say I've got a magazine with a circulation of you know 1200 you know 1300 let's let's do something about this and so we managed to get a, you know we managed to get a thing in the in the center of the next review in which we said this is unacceptable and it, mm -hmm. it's prejudice and th there we are and the I like that area of combativeness. I like that area of adversarialness. I mean, it's it's scrappy because you know I'm as much as I'd like to be a bit more settled. I, I remain quite scrappy as a person, um, and I suppose after that, um, but there's, there's that. I mean, I felt that I was adding something to an already yeah. rich poetic culture when I was doing the next review. Um, all my teachers were slightly different, um, simply because it was entirely inspired by one reading. Of a fairly high pro at a fairly high profile magazine that, for you know reasons of nepotism, I can't name. And I went along because Abby Old Barry was reading at it, and mm -hmm. I, I like listening to Abby read. And there were two other poets, you know, um, I think Karen McCarthy Wolf was reading there, and then there was then there were two male poets, and the male poet at the end stood up and did that sodding reading, which I felt like I'd just sat through a million times before mm -hmm. of you know, my wife has had a baby, but let's talk about me. And and let's slide in a couple of comments about the fact that I've obviously observed with other people at the end and things like that. And I, again, if we're talking about body language, I came out and the editor of the magazine said to me, I was sitting two rows in front of you, but I could feel your body language. And I was, and I was like, yeah, the chair on this book. And I was just sick of the fact that in order to listen to the two brilliant female poets that evening, I had to pay the rent of listening to these two people <laughs> who did not lack for reading opportunities, did not have books out at the time, did not read, but they were so much a part of the poetic firmament and, you know, and the would you stay for a glass of wine yeah. that, you know, you had to listen to them. And, um, and it's not that there aren't, it's not that there weren't at the time, you know, all female reading series. Mm. And it, 
But I thought, let's do this. Let's not do this in some pub in the middle of Hackney, which takes ages to get to. Let's do this in the middle of London. Let's do it on a regular basis. There'll be a glass of wine. There'll be books being sold. And you get to sit in a room and just listen to these women. Because I felt that not enough people were saying that. And it's, it's, it's bad that that had to be done by a guy. Mm. Um, and there are plenty of times when it is done by a woman. Yeah. Um, but I felt I did. I did feel that there was a corrective need to all my teachers. I, I was I was just tired of going to all those readings and them being so male dominated. And even even a lot of the poetry being written by the women who were friends of the dominant males mm. um, was being done in in deference or reaction to theirs, which I felt was, again, a lack of agency. Mm. Um, I did, you know, I'm, I'm an old fashioned socialist. I believe it's important to have the conversation, whether you're having the argument or just being able to hear more people speak. And that, that was, so that was my thing. Um, I, sp I suppose in terms of my, in terms of the relationship between that and my own creative process, um, it's undeniable that um, editing so many wonderful people in the next review, you know, it, it, it makes you read more, mm -hmm. which, is, which is the only advice you can ever give to writers. I yes. think it's just yeah. read more. Um, and because when you say read more, it's not only read other people, read yourself a bit more mm -hmm. because that will inevitably help your editing and that will inevitably bring the stuff down. Um, and the wonderful thing about wonderful thing about all my teachers was that um, it inevitably in, influenced the way I was writing and stuff just because I got to listen to these wonderful people. So I got, I got to listen to you and Abby, but I also got to listen to, you know, Kirsty Irving and Nicola Nathan and um, people, and there was a there was a slightly, you know, there was a, at least a ten percent. I just want to hear this poet who I've never heard read before thing. So I'd never heard Alison Brackenbury read. Mm. I'd I'd never heard Yvonne Reddick, who I think is one of the best poets writing today. You know, I've yeah. never heard these people read, and there were poets who I felt um, uh, were often so accepted as being something else that they didn't get to read their own poetry enough. I mean, I think that's true of John Clegg, but the. Um, people like um, Lavinia Singer and um, and Holly Hopkins, who to, who are viewed as serving another role within the poetry community, and so don't actually ever get the chance to read, you know, this stuff, which isn't true. I mean, you know, both both Lavinia and Holly read, read plenty, but that that inevitably had an effect on me simply because you you have a, you know you listen to them read and you think you know, God, that's interesting. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to go and reread them, but I'll also reread the things that they've talked about between poems, because that helps. So that there is at least a 10% greed factor to, I think, any editorial, <laughs> any editorial or curator, cu curatorial role has a greed factor in that, you know, what can I get out of this? You know? Yeah, I think that's, that sounds about fair, you know. And it's inspiring to sort of like hear things that you don't, ordinarily here and to hear work in conversation that doesn't always get to be in conversation. I find, you know, I, I do a lot of readings where I'm sort of token angry working class person who is white but not quite. So I'm white enough that I feel I can slot into a niche and if I stand in the corner and nobody talks to me it'll be fine. But <laughs> on the other hand I'm just edgy enough that I'm fulfilling some weird quota and it's usually me and it's kind of if we've got another guy there it'll be some like, you know, hardcore ex-militant tendency guy doing angry poems about Boris Johnson or it'll yeah. be me and some you know kind of like yeah some very boring staid person like we just put Fran in at the end because she's edgy just you know she's she can she can wear a floral print dress and it will basically be fine <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, yeah, and I, th I think there's, I, I mean, one of the, I think the, the working conversation that normally doesn't get done, uh, one of, I'd say one of my favourite things about what happened out of all my teachers was, um, was Richard Skinner took a photograph when we were at the pub afterwards of Iris Column explaining to um, Yvonne Reddick and Kate Wakeling, like, um, you know, something she'd been doing with these very short strip poems. Three very different poets mm -hmm. um, who wouldn't often get the opportunity to read together. Um, and wouldn't be able to talk about why they, you know, why they approach the reading in a different way, why they approach composition in a different way. And I think, again, it is the social thing of you, you need to get people talking to each other because one of, here we are again, we've ended up back at the problems of the modern poetry world. Um, <laughs> the, I don't feel like a lot of these people who, even though they're friends and everything, I don't feel like they talk to each other a lot. I think there is an acceptance of, we write act poetry of this type. And therefore, we don't really need to talk about the work, um, and we certainly wouldn't write about the, talk about the creative process or things like that. One of the reasons why I think in the in the third year of the next review, I, I upped the game with the interviews, and rather than having me talk to one person, I, it was me encouraging a conversation between two poets. Mm. Um, was I want I wanted to, uh, you know, I wanted to get a bit of that. I wanted to I wanted to hear about the engine room, but I also wanted to see the reaction, um, and it's about. It's, you know, Nick Cave believes that all writing is down to counterpoint, and that's almost like a human version of that. And when you create a read, when you curate a reading series with five poets and you think about how you'll put them together, there is an element of counterpoint about what will happen when we put these five people in the room together. You know? Yeah, yeah. I think we had, you know, we had quite a good reading. We did a reading with um, Rob Lipton. Hi, Rob. Um, the great American poet, and um, he organises the um, Richmond Arts Reading Series. Yeah. And I was sort of slightly, I had a slight sense of trepidation. We were all going to be reading together, and I was like, "Wow!" So on the one hand, this is amazing. On the other hand, what if the universe actually implodes? Yeah. But it was, <laughs> it was really good to kind of have that sense of conversation. And so many people after that reading were like, "Oh, it was grand. It was like it's the best reading we've had for ages." Because everyone just. Um, I don't think it was because my conversation in between poems was wonderful because I'm not very good at the conversation bit in between poems. It was because the work spoke to me, you know. Yeah, yeah. and I think and I think the work the work. Um, I mean, it was. I mean, you know, not bring this up. But I remember when we did the launch reading for uh, the mains, and it was you, me, and Abby. And I thought that the, um, you know, I didn't feel like we were ticking representative boxes as being. Um, I mean, I had the slight power in that I had asked the two of you to come in. And again, that was in the 10% of, I just want to see Fran Locke and Abigail Perry read. Mm -hmm. But um, but I did think that the way that, again, the work speaks to each other and you're able to find, I mean, I, I you know, Nab Nabokov had the idea about, you know, there, that there are different, when, when he was once having conversations with me about different poetic schools, and he said, there is only one school, that of talent. Um, and, I'm, I'm wary about the sort of patrician mm -hmm. implication that happens in that. But I do think that, you know, if this stuff, if, it, if this stuff is good and if this stuff is true, and if this stuff has had the care that, you know, poets are supposed to put into their work mm -hmm. of caring about it, um, then I think that there is going to be a synthesis and there is going to be a reaction, even if the stuff's miles apart from each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, you know, and I've, and I, I suppose one of my one of my wider concerns um, in terms of looking at poetry that perhaps 
I don't react to so well, or indeed outright dislike, um, is I worry about, um, because the poet themselves has taken so little care over it, mm. um, the bit of the poem that acts as a springboard or as a, as a launching booster is, is missing. And as a result, the, the reader will take less from it. Um, and if you're reading with other people, it will also, I think, sound a bit of a broken note in the evening um, simply because you're you know you you haven't you haven't cared for it in the same way i'm not i'm not questioning well i mean i question sincerity a lot with certain poets but i'm not questioning the sincerity of your having turned up with a poem that you think is really good i'm questioning the sincerity of your engagement with other people and also of your engagement with the wider world of which you have elected to become a part and I suppose this drifts over into um, wider discussions of the canon um, and the fashionable dismissal of, um, of, of what a lot of the canon is these days. Um, pe people taking pride in not, being a, in not having read Keats is odd to me, mm. particularly when I know that a lot of them went to private schools and then went to Oxbridge. And so I'm like, well, you have read Keats, so I don't know, you know. But yeah, I, yeah. I, think, I think that it's, you know, it's it's isolation and mm. it's and it imbues isolation upon other people, um, which I view as an inherently right wing aspect. Yeah. It it is a there is no such thing as society thing happening in the poetry world, because you are saying we all exist apart and anyway let's not talk about it. It's so uncomfortable. I get that because you know I do a lot of stuff with with other commies and. A lot of the thing that happens when you get a lot of working class commies doing poetry is they're like, and I've never read Shakespeare and, you know, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, no, the, the point of communism is not to shit on all of this stuff and take it away from people. It's to give it everybody. You are yeah. entitled to it. There is stuff there for you. And writing back to it is still an engagement. Rejecting it that vehemently is still an engagement. It's yeah. one either way. You are positioning yourself in reference to this kind of like you know poetic bold start whether you choose to read it or not you might as well do yourself a favor and read it there yeah. is stuff and I think, in there. yeah i think one one of the things i one one of the things that um uh, which i really loved about uh, some of the prose work of yours that i read like before i met you was the um the extent to which you said you know um that you know the the I am expected to either abhor the canon or to um, or to work against the canon or thing. And I remember when you and I had collaborated uh, for the um, for the dub for the dub anthology, and I was at the reading and there was a guy on before me and um, he did that thing that a lot of people do where they say is said well you know isn't it ridiculous that we're just reading dead white men what other art form does that happen in and things like that you know we need to get rid of all that stuff and we need to rebuild replace it and i got up and i said look in, in the spirit of solidarity comrades i would point out that you know i've i am here to read a poem i have collaborated with somebody who has pointed out that no this is for everyone mm -hmm. um and the act of um exclusion prior to the 20 20th century or even the second half of the 20th century yeah yeah sure that's a problem but mm. that does not negate the value that's being worked. it's it's what will it's what Wilfred Owen talked about and what he disagreed with Siegfried Sassoon about to do with um World War One where mm. 
Sifu Sassoon, of course, believed that because of the cynical manner in which the war was being conducted, that removed any agency or value to the action of the dead soldiers. Whereas Wilfred Owen said, no, I believe that I believe that bravery is bravery is still bravery, even if it's misused. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter if they were being sent on a mission that they were all going to be killed on. These men were still very brave in what they did. And I think, you know, and I think that's a wider point that spreads out. It, and it's, you know, it's the apocryphal story, which we don't know if it's true or not, um, between um between the, in the first meeting of um Kim Philby and um Anthony Blunt mm. uh, in when Kim Philby was being recruited into, you know, spying for the Russians. And Kim Philby attempted to impress Anthony Blunt by saying, <laughs> by sort of gesturing at Cambridge and saying, you know, uh, isn't it, doesn't it make you uncomfortable, this privilege? Don't you want to smash it up and drag it down? And Blunt said, no, because I, I want it for everyone. Yes. And and also the two of them, I, 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 I still venerate and admire Kim Philby in a way that I would never do with Anthony Blunt, but that's, yeah. largely, <laughs> that's largely to do with, that's largely to do with, um, with political sincerity. Um, yeah. And I do think that that's the, the care of, you know, I, I don't know who gets, I don't know what value is created by throwing out a book, but I do know what value is maintained by passing it around. Yeah, um, exactly. So I'm going to borrow Rob's other question. Now. I'm just basically stealing all of his interview questions. And they were good I questions. <laughs> they were good questions. He's a good interviewer. Um, and I want to ask about um, about form because your kind of your engagement with form it's a hugely important feature in both tricks and the mains. Um, and I'm especially interested, I guess, in the way you spoke about using form to both express and evade emotion. And tightrope those poems are walking between disclosure and restraint. I'm miming a tightrope just <laughs> just caught myself. Do you mime I'm, a tightrope or do you be, mime your behaviour upon a tightrope? Yeah, I was just miming myself on a fucking tightrope. <laughs> <laughs> you can edit the side, Jack. <laughs> yeah, there's a, no, there's a, was it, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a suede song called Tightrope in which, mm. in which he says, was it, walking a tightrope with you, um, too scared to look down through my fingers, was it, when I slipped through the noose, and I'm like, Brett, I love you to bits, but um, those are those are two images going on at one time. A tightrope and a noose are two very different things. The only thing they've got in common is fibre, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh God, that's it. No, I've gone. That's yeah. it. Anyway, no, no. Uh, but so, yeah, so I'm I'm interested yeah. in that in the tightrope or noose that the poems are walking between disclosure and restraint. Yeah. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about just the process of um, crafting and shaping those poems and the way in which form is is working for you. I think with I think with form the um, I I the, I had the dangerous early influence of um, of R. S. Thomas followed by Ted Hughes mm -hmm. and a, and a very when I was a teenager and a, and a deep reaction to both, but also a fundamental misunderstanding of um, how they had arrived at these things. Hughes particularly was a, was a you, know, um, you know, Larkin said of Yeats that, you know, he's a, he's a, he's like, he says he's like garlic, you know, once you've, once you've gone near something, you can't get it off, you know, and so you end up with these, these and, and the, there was an aspect of that with me, with Hughes, um, and the, um, and it gave you the excuse to apply very little discipline to yourself. No, no matter how much I was redrafting, I wasn't structuring, and that's different. 
Um, and I, I subject, I, for four years in my early, in my early twenties, I, I, I wrote nothing that didn't rhyme. Um, I did ev everything rhymed, no matter how good or bad the poem was, it had to structurally rhyme, it had to adhere to this. And I just think that's like, because it's like, you know, I'm, I'm a mediocre musician, but I can play enough instruments. Mm. Um, but you do have to practice them and you do have to put the work in. And it's, you know, Larkin said of, of the difference between to me, he said, I'm sure that, you know, certain people, you know, and certain people can do, you know, free verse straight off the bat and that's great, but, mm. but it is a level of anxiety. I think this is something you need to learn, even if you end up writing, you know, you know even if you don't end up writing sonnets for the rest of your life, I think that being able to, and, I mean, even looking at the mains, you know, the mains has a very strict structure, but it's not, it's not, you know, it's, it's not structure as we know it, Jim. Um, it's, it's not a structure I found anywhere else. Um, it was a structure I invented. Um, but if you look at the first poem in it, PTSD, you know, it, it is, it is a poem that is informed by um, iambic or trochaic um, progression um, and the way that you want to, the way that using rhythm, you want to smuggle the poem into the person's subconscious while they are concentrating on the subject. Because mm. um, you want you want it to act as a vibratory force, and you want it to act as a um, you want to act as a as a as a sensual experience, um, as much as you want the subject matter to be important as well. Um, it, I mean, it's it's worth pointing out that you know the the only strictly rhyming poem in the whole of the mains is quick fit and mm -hmm. quick fit is for want of a better word also the commonest poem in the whole thing you know describing what it does and how it does it um and also doing that thing that i'm very wary of which is um, men writing about traditional expressions of um, masculine behavior mm -hmm. um and i but i think with as i've as i've moved on as i've gone a bit further um one of the things that we said in the conversation with Rob, which I borrowed from Don Patterson, is that he said, you know, the thing about poetry is you are trying to surprise yourself as much yeah. as surprise the reader. You're trying to arrive at the unexpected moment while seeking it, which is such an intrinsically paradoxical exercise that, you know, you can barely keep a straight face. Um, and one of the ways to make yourself do that is to place it within rhyme is to place it within meter and um, because you are forcing yourself to use words that otherwise you wouldn't you know you in a, in a language as unrhyming as english you are restricting yourself um you are you know it's a bit like you know putting somebody in a room with sort of seven utensils and saying you know build a fire you know you it's whereas i think a, a lot of people when they're trying to um write a poem without those aids and i do view them as aids yeah um you know that you're you're handing them fire lighters and a box of matches and saying light a fire well yeah okay but that wasn't difficult was it and and always remember that you know poetry is difficult um and i think it's also a question as to whether if we come back to the canon for a second it's a question as to whether you look at the canon and you go this is a source or a resource or is it a tool mm. um and they are different things and I've always viewed the canon as being far more of a tool than a resource, um, present or recent perduration of the word tool aside. Um, but I think the the way that there's also, I mean, if, if we're going to talk about the, the difference between the poems I was writing when I was writing in the mains, which is written in a very flat accent, 
and the poems that I've been writing since and which I've recently been able to get a manuscript in tricks there's the question of voice and there is and not voice in terms of a, you know identifiable aspect that sets one poet apart mm. but there is something to do with accent and I've, I've it's taken me a long time to get comfortable writing in a poetic way that will express an accent um, because my accent is difficult and my accent is odd and my accent is at heart conflicted you know people in the north think of them the south people in the south think of them the north yes. um, but also if you restrict yourself into um into a formal structure then your accent is really really important um, because because of the matter of syllabics and because of the matter of breath um so you know a a line which has the word sure s-u-r-e um in to somebody in in the south of england sure is a sure is a mm -hmm. sort of one syllable word for me it is a two syllable almost three syllable word same with poor you know yeah. rather than poorer yes um you know and and if i write, if i look at something that i write um formally it's about being honest with yourself as well i don't say something uh, in my in day-to-day -day speech i don't say yes i say summer or i say i you know the only problem there is as don patterson has pointed out um when you look like you are catering to some exoticization of phonetics, then the volume of the words in the line becomes imbalanced. I've, I asked Don once why, you know, why, why the amount of Scots had died down in his work. Mm. And he just said, part of it's to do with, you know, living in England for a bit, but he said part of it as well is to do with, you know, the post-Irving Welsh eroticization, exoticization mm -hmm. and eroticization of, of regional phonetics. Yes. Um, he said, he said, I can put the word shilpit in a line and it's the loudest word in that line because that's yeah. all people are looking at. Yeah. And if I, and it's one of the biggest wrenches in, in, my, in my writing that I don't write summit. I always write something because I feel wrong doing it. But I also know that if I write some out there, then it is going to detract from the rest of the line. Um, yeah. And that's the issue to do with form is that one of the nice things about form is it does force you into, into a greater awareness of the way, not only that you will speak, but that other people will hear. And I think that those are two very different things. And again, a lot of my objection to the bad poetry of today is, is not so much people not caring about how they speak, but they don't care about how people hear. Yeah. I think it's a, it's this kind of ugly assumption that, you know, the page, one single version of the poem that appears on the page is the only version, and that's the true version of the poem. But there's nothing sort of embodied or oral about it, that the only way people are going to access your poem is through print media, which not everybody has access to, I think. Yeah. And I think there's also a way of disclaiming responsibility for the thing that you've made. Absolutely, yeah. It's yeah. You know, we'll put this on the page and then I don't have to deal with, that, you know, the kind of like yeah. all the ethical implications of accent voice and, and intonation. I don't have to deal with that history. I don't have to, you know, I don't have to deal yeah. with all the knotty things provoked by that. I can just put it on the page, go over there and, yeah. you know. And I also think there's there's always a discussion about um, there's always a discussion about power going on when you talk about form mm -hmm. um, the idea of the either inherited or traditional or imitated form. Um, 
And the, I mean, the crucial person in this in the last 50 years is Tony Harrison, um, is the extent to which an entire working class identity is communicated through, you know, some of the best and tightest rhyme poetry you will ever encounter. But the idea that as far as a lot of people are concerned, you know, that is through its form, no different to John Batchman. Um, and John Batchman himself is robbed of the the sheer pain that is in a lot of his poetry because of the form and because of the the cuddliness um and i i'm sh i'm shocked by quite how overt the rejection of rhyme has become mm. in the last in in the last 10 years i used to think it was a case that don't worry you know they'll we've got three verse people over here we've got this up but actually the attack upon form and rhyme has become much stronger um and um, I, I, I refuse to believe just full stop that anyone, that any poet benefits from not having tried a sonnet because mm. a sonnet is a difficult thing to do and it's a difficult thing to pull off. But that, that being said, the, the harder form that comes back again and to do with that Harrison Betjeman, mm. um, again, tightrope um, and contrast is if you look at something like the balladic form, um, yeah. because folk music is as important as it is to me, as indeed it is to you. Um, the idea that the balladic form is viewed as almost sort of nursery rhyme, but as far as I'm concerned, the balladic form is quite a threatening form and it is it is a frightening form. And it's, you know, as David Harson has pointed out, these are very dark things. Um, and they, I, I was I listened to a song by John Bowden recently where he said, I, you know, I walk down streets where only dark things are. and the, and he said, you know, I'm guided by some shining star and, you know, obvious sort of rhyme, but that does not remove the, you know, deep threat at the start of that. And the balladic form, which I've, I've interestingly found myself moving far more into, I mean, I, I suppose simply as a result of years and years of the importance of people like David Harson or Don Batson, um, the balladic form is so difficult to get right. It just is. Yeah. It's um, it, nothing feels as good as when you do, um, but the it's so difficult to get right. The and it and it more effectively. It, you're not actually smuggling in the line mm. as much as you are. You're you're firing it through the through the face of the reader, in because the reader discovers something that is for reasons of historical survival. Um, yes. It is uh, what we what we what people say of Larkin, it is, it is instantly unforgettable. Mm. Um, and that is something, it's not so much that you read this once and you can recite the entire thing five minutes later or a year later, but you read it once. I just think that this stuff gets its hooks into your face a bit more than the slightly longer thing. I've, I've, uh, well, not so much slightly longer thing, but the less structured thing. There, yeah. is, there, is, there is a place and there is room and there is an importance in chaos and breakdown and that in poetry but I, d I do think that, that as Larkin said I, I, I think it takes, takes an enormous amount of confidence that I'm not always sure isn't arrogance or laziness to thoroughly reject these things without really having tried. Yeah definitely and I think even you know I think failures of form I think the points at which you know you fail to make the thing are also telling you something and I fail to make the thing formally quite often <laughs> Every time I do, I feel like I'm learning something. I'm learning something about what my comfort zones are. I'm learning about what 
my voice and my action, you know, and my intonation can do and how far that stretches. Yeah. The direction and I think the, in which that stretches. Yeah. And I, and I, mean, I think the, and I, I've, I've had to come to terms with, you know, you know mid, mid, mid 30s. And I've just worked out that I'm never going to be able to do a Villanelle. I, you know, I've been yeah. trying, I've been trying for 20, <laughs> I've been trying for 20 years and just my, my entire life is littered with the failure of that. But you, I mean, as, as self-aggrandizing as it may sound, you have to remember, um, was it Ptolemy's great statement about Alexander, where he said, you know, um, if, if, if his goal to unite so many nations ended in failure, what failure? He said, you know, mm-hmm. his failure towered over other men's successes. And it's not so much, it's not so much that that's the case of your formal failures being better than other people's um, free versus successes. It's a case of you have learned something from this. Yeah. And I think, I think one of the formal things, I mean, just to ask you a question for a second, um, one of the formal things that um, unites your and my writing, I think, is our, is our valuing of the refrain mm. and of the repeated image that is important to mention again and again. And I was, I was struck during um, our reading with, well, recently of, you know, the other one job, Janet, and there's that. <laughs> but also when, when you and I were doing the poem for Dub and I was doing the found thing out of yours, I knew that the thing that united what I wanted to do in yours was having the refrain, mm-hmm. was having the, and, and that, I suppose that leads us into talk about, excuse me, that leads us into talk about song and it leads yeah. us into talk about um, folk tradition in that way. But it also, talks about the idea of emphasis and emphasis being formally represented mm-hmm. rather than the danger of emphasis in poems, which is having the big reveal at the end yeah. or the shocking image in the middle. Mm. Um, and so your emphasis is delegated to the um, at best melodramatic and at worst manipulative. Yeah. Whereas one of the things about emphasis can be, I think particularly through well-used refrain, the extent to which it will slowly almost kiss its way into your understanding of the poem. I'm, I'm, I mean, if I, if I think of the, um, if I think of Paul Muldoon's Elegy for Heaney, mm-hmm. um, you know, St. Cuthbert and the Otters, where the, the phrase, I cannot thole the thought of shame is Heaney dead, you know, mm-hmm. and, it's, and it's not done at the end of every stanza, and it's not done in places you predicted, but the use of it as a refrain means that you are, I feel like you're being given something a bit more, yeah. and you know. And I, I think I think the role of give and take in poetry is something that isn't perhaps considered enough. Yeah, I think that's an idea. I think you know the the refrain is something that is bringing you back and is retuning your attention to that moment, stop you from kind of like spiraling off and drifting off into some sort of every. But it's also a way of you know bringing the reader back in and saying, "I realise that this may have alienated you slightly." Yeah. <laughs> come back it's so, okay so I'm sort of and I'm I'm kind of aware that when I'm doing it I'm also imagining you know that I might not be the only person reading it ever I'm sort of I feel that I can imagine other people singing it in this strange kind of like meaning slightly choral way and yeah. I'm aware of the, the lament being a yes. great part of you know angry political singing being part of Irish tradition and I think the refrain is is a sort of kind of callback to that in, in a lot of what I do. And I feel that in your work as well, that there is something even older than that. I feel like there's this Anglo-Saxon stuff going on. 
it's all predicated on this call and I can imagine that it's meant to be spoken mouth to mouth and I can understand the refrain as being part of the kind of like communal transmission of the work as well yeah yeah the no, they... it belong to that kind of like older culture yeah and there's I mean there's the, there, there's there's a sort of I mean you know there, it, there there is a there is a there is an importance of caveman in that way and mm. there is an importance of the um, angel waking him up in the night and saying, you know, sing this to me. It, yeah. And the idea that that makes for it. And I think the, um, the one of the uses of rhyme, but also one of the uses of recognizable rhythm um, when, you know, done well, is that the reader and or the hearer senses the refrain within the poem, even though the words might be different. Um, or even though the line might be different or even though the subject matter might be different, they sense something familiar, mm -hmm. um, even if it's just something familiar to what you did four lines ago. And so it's a way, it's, it, it's a way of drawing the reader in a bit closer, and, and not, but not in a manipulative way. It's to do with the transmission of trust to the reader. And it's to do with, it's to do with a betokening of warmth towards the reader as well. And for all that, I suppose, coldness is a concern that I, I imagine we'll, we'll end up talking about but I think that there needs to be a level of warmth towards the reader and a level of care towards the reader and um, simply in the way that when you hold the door open for someone you do it out of care of care rather than custom you know it's and and that that's that's to do with the ineradicable role that um, socialism plays in um, what you write and what I write I think so. yeah I think the idea of like care and coldness is something that it's incredibly important and it's an anxiety as well in a lot of you know a lot of my work where it tends to go a bit obscure and a bit weird and it's been called you know I sort of like have people say it's like experimental and and kind of like you know sort of like bloodless really bloodless is something you can never accuse your work of being it has a higher body kind than most slasher films. I think care is present if you care about the work. It's because you've made something that's going to go into the world that hasn't got, you know, isn't so ill-made that it's going to fall apart on first use, that it's going to totally trap somebody, that it's going to alienate, or that it's going to manipulate somebody. The yeah. care is in the attention you pay to the poem, and the poem becomes this kind of bridge between you, not in a sort of disgusting poems need to be you know this kind of like wanky gesture of empathy sort of way but in a way that is actually visible and practical in the room where you are reading it yeah. is a form of connection that care is a form of a form of connection a sort of dialectical kind of tenderness is my phrase for it and I keep using it despite the fact everyone goes what does that even mean <laughs> I know what it means it is forcing but, back yeah. against against the grot of the world it's inviting people into a space <coughs> where has been bestowed where attention is being bestowed and that attention is lacking in the world as you know citizens yeah, yeah. and I, I think there's a, a, a i think it's i, I think there's a, there's an element of um tonality and lighting to it as well mm -hmm. in terms of um you know the, the reader does want to be entertained and the reader wants to be surprised, but the reader does not want to be perpetually wrong-footed for the pleasure of somebody else. 
Um, and the, I, I suppose, and entertainments do not need to be comforting or laudatory um, or familiar, um, but they need to serve a purpose that um, is, a, is able to help in a way. And I don't, and I, I don't like, I don't like poetry that's produced either formally or um, in looser forms, which is about um, lecturing, correcting, or insulting. Um, and there is a difference between the effective crit critical eye and voice of decent art and just people, for want of a better word, either whinging or, or shouting. And that, you know, that. That gets me that way because I mean, for, because for every Tony Harrison, you have an Adrian Mitchell, and the he, he's dead. I can say that kind of stuff now. Uh, <laughs> the and I remember, I remember picking up was it the the, was it the Shadow Nose, which was you know Adrian Mitchell's supposedly great anti laureate volume, and I was like, there is nothing good in this, and it is, and it is down to the fact that. Um, Care is not being presented. Um, entertainment is not being presented. Um, nutrition is not being presented. Mm. Um, what you want is for people to say, you know, well done, and and why don't you stay for a glass of wine? You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it is that stuff again. I mean, you you know, po poetry reading you know, as valuable as the conversation in the pub after poetry reading always is. You you can tell not only poetry readings where they are tearing through it to get to that point, mm. but also you can tell poetry that has been written in order to facilitate getting to that point. Yeah. Um, and the idea of handing out a couple of helpful leaflets, the better to praise the poet afterwards. <laughs> and, um, yeah. and this, doesn't, this, doesn't, this doesn't care about other people and this doesn't care about helping. Yeah. And I think it's kind of, it's telling to me that a lot of the poems that don't care about helping are the ones that signpost most loudly. We care about helping. So yeah. yeah. Like it's, um, it's no. sort of some kind of weird outreach exercise, you know, like it's some sort of branch of the service industry or it's some sort of pseudo therapy. And you're like, well, yeah, really. <laughs> yeah. And I think, yeah, and I, I, and you do wonder really about the, um, about the intention behind the idea of, um, this is what I talk about when I say, when I say without the excuse of commission. Yeah. Um, when people appear and when people appear and say, um, allow, "Allow me to allow me to explain my take on the cultural concern presently under under the microscope," I'm like, "Well, no, actually, the cultural concern presently under the microscope requires the involvement of um, you know prosecution and judgment, and whether or not that's being done by writing or whether that's being done by the courts, that's." Um, what is needed. What I do not need is your reflection upon this, which, as I've pointed out elsewhere, is more to do with the distillation of the pain of others in order to greater yeah. expound your, um, your own specific suffering. And your suffering is suffering, and I'm not saying that it isn't, but I'm saying that the pain of others is what we are talking about in this room. So why are you coming in here and um, attempting to talk about something else? And it's, it, this is to do with what Clive James talked about when he talked about the failure of mm. the failure of scaling down. You know, there are there are it's it's not that there isn't a subject that poetry can talk about, but there are 
certain subjects that cannot be used in order to help you on your po poetry on your on your poetical journey it's like it's like it's like stealing a rocket booster in, in order to be able to run a bit faster you know the yeah that's not the purpose it was made for um mm -hmm. people have suffered as a reaction as a response of you doing it and none of the good that you will do is going to expiate either of those is uh, expiate either of those problems or make either of them better and again, what do we come down to? We come down to a lack of care for other people. Yeah. Which is very dangerously close to <laughs> everything that's wrong with contemporary poetry again, isn't it? Which is circle. Yeah. Eloquently circling that. Okay. Well, as long as we eloquently circle it, I don't know. Elegantly, um, yeah. yeah. In formal wear, in formal attire. <laughs> yeah. Uh. So yeah, I think I kind of want to finish with talking about um, tricks and there's something in it that feels more, the phrase I've written down but it sounds wanky now I read it back, is directly elegiac, so it, it, it is, I think. It is. <laughs> I think it is, um, than the mains, and that there are a lot more moments of vulnerability and tenderness. I mean, obviously the speakers throughout the mains are extraordinarily vulnerable it's an acknowledgement of that vulnerability and maybe even a slight sense of I don't really want to use the word comfort but a sense of um, owning or reckoning with that vulnerability that is happening in tricks that yeah I think I think in the in the in the poetry that I've been I mean part of this is again like the veins I don't want to put this entirely out of context but the mm. um one one of the things about the mains is, is that the characters are trapped in these specific situations with the two brother figures and then with the Walker character that appears. Um, and they have no sort of choice about that. And there is no agency. And so the responsibility that has to be taken, because my big sort of political and personal belief is that people should take more responsibility for their actions. Um, and, you know, own that shit is going to be the only thing on my gravestone. Um, but the, I think one of the things about tricks and stuff I've been looking at and last doing in the last year have been, it's the wide eye still, but it is the choice. You know, the, the, these are poems, not so much that I chose to write because I don't think we ever do that, um, but I, they, they're poems that I have chosen to look, they are things that I have chosen to look at mm -hmm. and to keep the eye open enough to concentrate on it, even when it's painful. I mean, almost especially when it's painful because I don't know when we write a poem, when we're concentrating on something, when it isn't painful. Um, and so there is a great, greater degree of agency and there's a greater degree of taking responsibility. The, the option of the door as well is there, which in the mains it wasn't. I couldn't walk away from the stuff in the mains. I couldn't get out. I was trapped with it. Um, with tricks, it's different. Um, and also, I mean, in the last year, there have been things that in terms of my gender identity and sexuality I've come to terms with. Um, and there was a case of needing to, needing to better acquire a language to talk about that that was not automatically limited and one of the issues to do with i don't think there is a yet developed um, bisexual poetry in england in no. in the uk i i there, there there are very particular gay poetries um, and there are very particular queer mm -hmm. poetries i think that bisexuality is one of those things that really isn't talked about enough um and hasn't found a voice for itself and um and gen gender queerness and gender fluidity is also something that is just 
you know, beginning to have a conversation and is beginning to have an expression. So I was trying to work out a way of coming to terms with, um, you know, both gender fluidity and, and the extent to which that fits my bisexuality without wanting to limit it to just being about that. Um, because the extent to which, um, you know, gay poetry is, is often limited to being um, either erotic or elegiac, mm. you know, because we're uncomfortable with gay people and, it, and it's kind of all right that AIDS kills them from time to time. That kind of thing, you know, all bound up in the one figure of, of Tom Gunn. Um, but but I, th I think with, I, I think with the new work, the, there is, I mean, there's a longer line, which is different, which of course is obvious. And there's, there is a more, there's more engagement with C.K. Williams. Um, it's interesting because Don Patterson has also decided to pursue a longer line uh, mm. of late. And I wonder <laughs> how much, anyway. But the role of humor is important in tricks yeah. um, because I suddenly realized how important the role of humor was in, in sort of my day-to-day -day life. Um, and, you know, laughing is important, but also the slightly wryer eye. Um, whereas with the mains, I was worried about wandering beyond one thought or perhaps, you know, comorizing something and putting it in the middle. I'm now able to trust myself to get to there. Um, I wanted to have discussions in which, like a sonnet, you, I mean, I don't think there are any sonnets in, in Tricks, actually. Um, there's, there's a 14 line poem, which has a rhyming couple at the end, but it's not a sonnet. Um, the, um, but I mean, but I, mean I, I wanted, there were certain things I wanted to address there were questions I wanted to ask. And with a lot of the poems as well, there are some things where I feel like I come to a conclusion at the end mm -hmm. and I've worked out what I was looking for. Um, un unlike you too, from time to time, you know, I, I find what I'm looking for. Um, but also there are a couple of poems which I'm, I'm pleased about the fact that I don't find what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. um, and I haven't sorted it out and I haven't sold it. And there is a bit of frustration at the end because I think those poems need to be written too. I don't think that all poems need to have, I have set out on this quest and then I have discovered this thing. And at the end of the poem, I am wise. And so by deferential power on my part, there are poems in tricks where I say, I don't know. And I think saying, I don't know is really important. Um, I mean, the, the obvious, Poems as well. I mean, I you know, I believed in God when I wrote the mains. Mm -hmm. I'm an atheist now. That obviously has a different thing because it places more of a responsibility upon myself to know my, to know things a bit more. Um, simply because I, I think a certain amount of faith is to do with um, is to do with I don't understand, but it's all right. Whereas a lot of my experience at the moment of atheism is is, is I don't know and it's not all right. But I think as long as you're able to express that your frustration at not knowing something does not mean that you're giving up. Um, mm. I, think that's, I think that's important. Um, there's also an element to do with tricks, which is I like, I lo I like the idea of the poem as, as spell. I like the idea of poem as, um, you know, kind of... Uh, something you can pull out your back pocket to get you out of a tight corner mm. um you know there are there are things in this which are to do with there's a lot in tricks which is to do with trying to you know um you know well yeah things you pull out your back pocket to get you out of a tight corner um and and the thing that i can i'm concerned about i suppose or well not really concerned about but the thing that i'm wary of is that whereas the mains expresses quite well 
my prior anxiety to do with violence, mm-hmm. whether my own towards myself or towards other people. Um, and that's, and violence, which is ne- necessarily um, quite passionate and quite sparky. And as a result, I inevitably think of as being quite lyric. Um, the thing that I'm now wary of in tricks is coldness. And it's to do with the level, my capacity for coldness towards other people, and but also towards myself, and also within poetry, because I'm not as good as somebody like Tom Gunn or the Elizabethan poets he so venerated at casting the cold eye or being able to do the cold lyric. Um, and, I f- and that's comforting in a way because it means I still care about other people. Yeah. Um, but I suppose that is, a, that is the concern um, that is expressed in tricks is how long can you carry on staring at something and, and discussing it without bursting into tears or screaming or shouting mm-hmm. or anything like that. Um, but also still consider yourself fully in control of yourself. Um, mm-hmm. and and not inured to the horror around and things like that. I think the, yeah, I, I think the being, a, being able to focus, being able to write in a way that focuses and takes in and explores, um, but does not at any point remove, you know, the hand from the flame. I think that's yeah. very important. Yeah. yeah, sustaining that kind of vulnerable openness and that not quite knowingness and just having the sort of the balls to just kind of like, I'm just going to, I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to leave this doorway open, even if something I don't really enjoy might come through and I may have to feel something or think something that I don't necessarily want. It's leaving yeah. that door. It's leaving the door open for the reader as well, I think. And it's yeah. allowing and- them to enter that you know, that kind of receptive, vulnerable mode. And it's that yeah. that sustains and holds the collection together. Well, it seems it seems to me, you know, it's my great experience. Why did we get the PhDs if we're not going to wave this stuff around, you know? Um, the, um, uh, but I think, I mean, the, the, you know, the, it, it's interesting when you mentioned the word, you know, when you use the word elegiac, because, you know, there there mm-hmm. is an elegy in there for my, for my grandmother and, but it's, it's an elegy that admits that the attempts I have made to control or express or deal with both her long illness and my own reaction to it have failed. Um, and that actually there isn't a way of fixing this and sorting it out. Um, there, was a, there was a horrible mistranslation that um, Martin Amos has been touting around the place for the last 20 years. Uh, that's something that Primo Levi said. Um, Martin Amos has been claiming that Primo Levi said that he didn't understand the Holocaust and we have a duty not to understand the Holocaust because when you understand something, you contain it. Mm. Um, And so, you know, there's this worry that if we understand the Holocaust, we'll move on as if we haven't already. Um, And actually it's a a mistranslation. Mm. That's not what Primo Levi said. What Primo Levi said was a word that in Italian isn't to do with understanding, Mm. it's to do with decoding. He says, I have not decoded the Holocaust. Now, saying that I have not decoded the Holocaust is the same as saying that I have not decoded the crossword. That does not mean it can't be done. And I think that that's, I think that that's something that I, 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 I always want to express strongly in, in writing, which is to say that even if I have failed at this, that does not mean that it is failed or that, um, you know, my... My, my loneliness or my coldness or my lack of solace does not prescribe that upon the reader and nor does it limit the reader's capacity for progression or understanding or comfort 
um, or warm. And I think that's really important as well. Um, and I think that's sometimes time something that um, uh, I suppose we should touch on a second. Um, uh, the, the use that both you and I make of cultural reference. Um, whereas, at the start, whereas at the start I talked about the way in which I think cultural reference is misused in a lot of poetry these days in order to hide behind. I think that the way that you and I use cultural reference and that extends to formal reference, things that people recognize, um, is to say, is to extend a hand and say that no matter how difficult or unfamiliar the territory that we're about to walk over together is, there are things that you know, and there are things you understand, and there are things that I know and understand, and there will be enough of them in common for this to be a joint experience and enterprise. And I think I think that's important. Yeah, absolutely. I also think, you know, when I, I find that when I'm using, I, I will throw a reference in, or I will find a way of, you know, using a reference that is, because I've approached something that I don't know how to say as myself. And so you sort of, you, you reach into the dark and you pull something out from this huge, great big bag of stuff that you've absorbed. And you were like, ah, oh, but in the 11th century, <laughs> <laughs> this obscured martyred nun said this it's, and so she finds her way in there or you know something happened in the wire where this happened and that would be useful at this point and it's just like you know use every available resource that you have to try to get at the thing and again yeah. I think it's also about you know it's about failure it's about the limits of what you can do with stuff that you've got what any of us have what you know building blocks of culture it's like trying to make one of those amazing lego sculptures when all you've got is a bag of like wonky red bricks and the dog's chewed half of them it's <laughs> trying to I'm, I'm also hoping that there is an acknowledgement of that failure that we probably will fail but you know we will make yeah. something yeah so yeah and as, as I said earlier you know failure is tiring over successes but also you know let let's let's make the Beckett comment you know fail better exactly and, yeah, yeah fail better and on that note <laughs> this feels like an unhappy note i was hoping that you might kind of play us out by reading a few a few new poems absolutely um how many do you want as many as you feel comfortable with and can sustain with the breath in your body and the attention that you have uh, well i'll do um they, these, these are all from tricks, which may be published at one point, and if not, people can just write to me and ask for them. Which, Send yeah. them out, which is it's a glorious thing to have. It's a glorious thing to come through the post. I wish all the things that came through the post were that exciting. It's like, yeah. I have I like, a script. I like, yeah, I like, I like hand-binding things as well. I think mm. hand-binding is great. A, yeah. Well, I, I will start with this quite short thing, which does employ form. Um, this is a, a poem in memoriam to Clive James, who I um, who I knew slightly. Um, he was very gracious in my uh, next few days of um, of saying what he thought and occasionally contributing essays and things. It was very very cool of somebody like Clive James to write to a little magazine and say, "Can I send you something about Dante and things like that?" But also in a slightly, I only met him twice. Um, delightful man. Um, we we spoke a lot on, on the phone and by email. And somewhat, but I think the thing that will be the footnote in the biography um, with him and me is that in the later years of his life, um, I used to download Game of Thrones 
onto a USB and I would mail it to an, oh. an SAE <laughs> once a week because neither of us wanted to download Sky because we don't do with Murdoch. Mm -hmm. And so he used to send me this USB back and then I'd send it out again. So uh, as he said in an email once, you know, you, you kept me in tits and dragons for years, which, um, <laughs> but, but Clive, great poet, and, but I suppose more important essayist. He, he made a comment about the downscaling of traumatic historical experience and the inappropriateness of using it um, in order to express your own things. And so there is, so there's an epigraph, which I'll read before the title of the poem, which is from an essay of his called Big Medicine in 1972. And he said, I don't mean that there is material which poetry can't by its nature encompass, only that there is material which the poet can't by the material's nature render personal. It just can't survive the scaling down. So this is where I'm called a warning in memoriam for Clive James. The breathable being the bearable, I've little to dictate, but maybe this, the shackled people whose hell you translate as a lightning conductor of your own may ask at the cemetery gate, why you, the claimed custodian of their important tomb, have used their words without them for a song of yourself alone. And I'll do this one. This one's called The Canon, and it's uh, simply to do with my concern both about the canon widely and also about what we do when we, uh, when we talk to one another and when we admire what somebody else has said or indeed are just affected by what somebody else has said. The Canon. Reading her message to me out loud, I became less convinced by it. I never doubted the text is sincere, and I couldn't ignore the turns of phrase that were unmistakably hers when she'd made up her mind. Something in me cheapened, though, or at the very least dampened, the effect of the lines in front of me when I spoke them back. She'd be pleased, I knew, to hear me mutter nothing if not well crafted, under my breath as I poured a drink and laid the words on the table. The achievement of our art is bound up in hearing the other say something that you'd thought of and maybe even said first, but never as well as they just managed. Most experience being universal, or at least imaginable, it is seldom the event portrayed that we've any interest in, compared to the talent being well applied to transmission itself. I'll admit that there are exceptions, but even the miracles of holy men or the massacres of their followers are not as unthinkable as we'd often wish them. I'm probably thinking too much of us if I think this is all down to trust. The smallest inauthenticity then runs through the medium faster than love would, and does so with all the grace of a snowplow with a drunk at the wheel. If one side of the coin has us listening wrapped to a great actor reading a shopping list, the other is our not believing certain singers, even were they to give us the words read off their passport, including the real first name. This was why that afternoon, my reading of I have felt for a while or the subsequent snapshots of my terminal flaws sounded fake when I did them while reading more gospel than gospels themselves when written by her in the message. As I sat back with the scotch and the cough that I medicate such deliveries with, I remembered that even matching exchanges have fallen uneven when I've given half. His I love you ringing truer to me 
in that Mecklegate cafe too late in the day than those same words for me a beat later had sounded. And how for matters both logistical and dispassionate, I want you to fuck me so fucking much was more believable coming from her in the back of that car off the ring road than when I tried it to her the night before on an exposed bed in an empty house. It's not that one person's lying, it's that some people just say it better. And I'll do a tiny short one um, to finish. Um, um, thank you very much for, um, for talking. Thanks very much for coming. The, um, there's a, there's an, there was an element of this poem that when I was writing it, I thought it was just a cheap trick about phonetics. Um, but actually, it makes you realise how through the art of phonetic pronunciation and accents and listening, um, certain words seem to live within other words. And there's a, there's a wonderful, almost bacterial sense to the way that a reading can break out, you know, um, other words from words that we think we understand and know and are boring. But, so the subtitle of this is Ars Phonetica, as in the sound, the, uh, the art of sound. So it's the poem's called The Reading. The Reading. It isn't how she tells it, no. A lot of thought has gone under that bridge to turn an evening years ago into the sharpened edge. It's something to do with the accent, the way that she fills the tale, the mid-Atlantic accident, the well within the whale. And though I myself knew something else, I'd no idiolect to correct her, to find the fool that sings in false, nor the liar that sings in liar. Mm. The well within the whale. Yeah. Yeah. Min. <laughs> um, like that's my comment on the back of the book, that min. min. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, One word. One word review. Yeah. But thank you so much for coming. I mean, not thank that you, you physically came, but entering the space of my slightly mad rambling questions <laughs> and no, doing poems good. for us. No, thank you for having me. It's been wonderful to be here. Yeah, it's right. I'm going to stop recording. And I get the feeling you've been cheated. Do I get the feeling that I've been cheated? Well, I certainly hope that you don't, but I kind of do sim simply because it was such a great podcast with Pat and uh, Fran, and I wish that I could have been there. Um, we'd like, we hope that you enjoyed the show and we'd like for you to stay in touch. You can get a hold of us through our anchor.fm forward slash emotional orphan main page. You'll find all of our links to social, uh, as well as to our, our support efforts. And we hope that you'll visit us there. You'll also find us on Facebook. We're all over most of the socials. We've got several shops out there selling merchandise. And you can find all that information from Facebook uh, or the emotionalorphan.net slash uh, coffee shop or the page slash social yet distanced from emotionalorphan.net. So come track us down, take a minute and say hello uh, under the message tab on the anchor page, leave us a voicemail. Uh, you got a minute to do it, so read a poem, say hello, give us uh, a clue on what you'd like to talk about. We appreciate your time and efforts. Please subscribe.
please smash the like button if you see such a thing anywhere in your eyeballs. And uh, take the time to share these uh, wonderful podcasts with your friends and family who might be into the arts and whatever the hell it is we think we're doing here. Thanks.